As the children are dismissed, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're looking at the end of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 today. In our series, Seed for Those That Are Scattered. Remember, Peter wrote to scattered numbers of believers throughout the uh, province of Asia Minor. You find it in chapter 1, verse 1. And what Peter did with these people, he did for us, because we too are scattered. We too are a minority. Genuine believers in Christ have always been a minority. And he writes us so that we might know better how to live. So we take a look at First Peter, as we'll be doing for the next several weeks. You may remember an actress's name by the name of Nancy Walker. If you go back far enough, she was Rhoda on television. She told a story one time about one of the most successful people she knew, an old man who's cleaned the streets at the MGM studio lot in Southern California. Here's what she said about him. This gentleman is one of the best and happiest human beings I know. To me, he's the best because he does his job fully and brilliantly. Every day he gets to the studio early, immaculately dressed. He makes it his business to know everybody on the lot. He has eagle eyes looking around for any debris that would clutter up his workspace, workplace. And when you see him at the end of the day surveying the grounds, you know he feels he's done a good job. That street cleaner knows MGM is his studio as much as anyone else's. And he's proud to be able to keep the streets clean. In my view, he is far more successful than many of the actors who think success means having their own makeup man. The street cleaner believes what I've always believed, says Nancy Walker. Success comes from the work itself. Success comes from the work itself. I tend to agree with that. I think there's some value in that statement. But I'd make a couple more observations. I think this man was successful because he knew what was expected. He had the ability to do the job. And there was a measure of satisfaction with the results. Would you agree? Let me tell you about my first job. Right out of high school, I got a job driving a Mr. Softy truck. Anybody here know what Mr. Softy is? Mr. Softy was a Dairy Queen on wheels. This is, this is a step up from the typical ice cream truck that you knew as a child. In my hometown, we had an ice cream truck. It was just a little van with a cooler box in the back with dry ice in it. The guy went around peddling his wares, and that was it. And you got fudge sickles or popsicles or whatever, but this you could get a Sunday. I mean, this was a Dairy Queen on wheels. But it didn't go well for me. I didn't know what was expected. I was given a very, very brief orientation to everything about this business. I had very poor orientation of the route. That first week I was lost several times. You needed to be a mechanic. One of those days I broke down and sat on the side of the road waiting for a mechanic to come to fix my truck so I could go on making money. I was sent into unsafe areas for a young 17-year-old kid. And I had no experience making change. 
Now you have these nice, fancy NCR cash registers, you know. You, they, you, the person buying gives you the money, you punch it all in, and it tells you how much change to give them. But I had to do this all in my head, and I never was a whiz at math. And it exacerbated the situation greatly to have a bunch of screaming kids around the truck all the time I'm trying to make change. And the, the melody, you know, we had a jingle we had to play. The melody, it still haunts me. Just goes on and on and on. My career, a week of agony, a week of drudgery, a week of frustration, my career lasted one week. They didn't like it very well when I quit. But I had no alternative. I was having nightmares over this job. I think I've learned something about management from this. If you want someone to succeed, help them know what is expected and how to do it. They still have to do it, but they'll be much more likely to be successful. Take Christianity, for instance. It's no different living the Christian life. God lets us know what is expected and also he enables us to accomplish it. Peter tells us, he tells them first, and God, by the Holy Spirit, has preserved it for us, so we're being told as well. Peter tells us it is expected that we should love one another. Now, you'd think we wouldn't have to say that. That wouldn't have to be our counsel, but it is. So there must have been a possibility of not loving one another for those who were scattered abroad to whom Peter wrote. There certainly is a possibility in our day and age, even in the church, of being together but not loving one another. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Now the question arises, what kind of love is this? I think we can get a little insight into that when we look at the Greek words that were used for love. In fact, you'll find love mentioned twice in this passage, in this verse. He talks about having a sincere love for each other, that literally is a sincere love for the brethren. comes from the word phileo. You, you know this. Many of you have had this. You've heard this many, many times, the different Greek words for love. He says you have it, but then he says you better have it. The second time it's an imperative, it's a directive. Love one another deeply from the heart. And this time he uses the word agape. Now there's a difference. Whereas phileo is a, is, is a lofty sense of love, certainly different than eros, which is another word that could be used for love, which had to do with just things erotic and sexual. Phileo is a wholesome love, but agape stands apart. And one of the distinguishing marks of agape is that it is not governed by the emotions. It is governed by the will. And not just our will, but God's will. God's will that takes precedence over our will. So in light of this, it's possible to love someone when you may not even like them. Because it's not a matter of emotions. It's not a matter of whether they deserve it or not. It's a matter of God's will taking precedence over our will. This, was set, this is what sets a Christian apart. This is what sets Christianity apart. This love is active. It's not passive. 
It's selfless. It's not self-serving. Let me illustrate it. Let me reintroduce someone to you today whom I've spoken of many times in this pulpit, some good friends of ours from Poland. You'll see their pictures on the screen. I'm going to ask Dennis to put those up there if he would. Many of you can tell me without me saying anything to you who this is. Monika Schieck. And just scroll those pictures, if you would, of Monika. That's Monika and her husband, Yarek. They comprise, that's Yannick, Monica and a friend of her, Isa. <clears throat> um, let me tell you a little about this, this woman. She's Yarek's wife. Together they, they formulated Pantomimidar. That's the theater group that I've been traveling with in summers in Poland. <clears throat> but what you don't know about her is her background, perhaps. I've shared it with some of you. She has a horrific background. You look at this beautiful young woman and you say, oh, she must have been raised in the best of environments. Not so. Her father was a raging alcoholic. And not only that, for some reason, he took all of his anger out on Monica. Whether he was drunk or not, whenever he wanted to settle a score or wanted to take it out on somebody, he took it out on her, physically abusing her to the point where she was actually hospitalized with internal injuries. Her mother thought he was going to kill her. In fact, her mother counseled her one time. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you hope to get out of this household alive, the only way for you to do it is to get married. And she did. She married Yarek when she was about 16 or 17 years old. She loved him, but they wouldn't have gotten married that, that young were it not for her father, so abusive. But the story doesn't end there. His abuse continued whenever he had opportunity until she got married. And as I recall correctly, she had to run and hide before she got married. She lived with the Shiak family. That's how she got acquainted with Yadik. She knew his sister to begin with. Then she met Yadik, and their relationship developed into a love relationship. She came to Christ during that time. Here's the kicker. Her father eventually separated from her mother, his alcoholism was taking his life. And when he was so ill and needed care and no one would give it to him, who took him in? You guessed it. Monica. She cared for this man even though he didn't care for her. Even though he abused her horribly in her young life, she cared for him. She gave him his meds. She helped dress him. She helped clean him. She loved him as an act of God's will taking precedence over her will. She told him about the love of Christ. I think if I remember the story correctly, he did receive Christ before he died. Now her mother's a believer as well. That's what we're talking about here. But this, just as an aside, just to sort of flesh out a little more about Yadik and Monica's lifestyle together, let me show us a picture of the boys. They had two children, they have two children, uh, Kaya and Kinga, two young women, beautiful young women. They're involved in the theater with them. And then they had an opportunity. Well, let me back up a little bit. Monica was uh, getting a degree in child psychology or pedagogy, and she had to do a stint in a children's home. 
And while she was in that home, she spied this little guy. Go back to the other picture, Dennis, if you will. She spied this little guy. He had definite physical needs. See the braces on his legs? His name is Roddick. She asked the supervisor, what will happen to this boy? Will he ever be placed in a home? They said, oh, no. He doesn't stand a chance. We've seen his, his kind before. Too many physical infirmities. He will spend the balance of his life in institutions. Well, the Holy Spirit used that in Monica's life and Yodik's life, and they have adopted him. He bears their name. He's a part of their family. But it doesn't stop there. Then they met, next picture, then they met little Daniel. This was taken last summer when they were performing together and he had his all of his face paint on. They met Daniel. Daniel also has physical needs. He's also a child of neglect, child of abuse. He is presently in their home in sort of a foster child status and they're waiting to see which way this will go. This is the love that God has shed abroad in Yadik and Monika's hearts and lives. To love not based upon whether somebody deserves it, but the love according to the will of God. I think you'll agree with me. It sounds unique. Thank you. You can take the pictures off now. It sounds unique, and it is. The question for us is this. How do we know when we have gotten to this state? We're told how to know right here in 1 Peter. Something this significant cannot be left to change or chance. There are a couple of things stated here. Both are related. The first issue is out of the latter. We're in a position to love when we have become obedient to the truth. You notice it there? Verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, There it is. We're in a position to love when we become obedient to the truth. Obedience to the truth, and Jesus is truth, by the way. Obedience to the truth purifies our souls. I don't think this takes a lot of fancy exegesis. I just want to read a couple of verses for you and just listen to them and see if they don't make sense. Jesus said, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He said later in John, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit, Holy Spirit, and life. Listen to what he said when he was talking to his father, John chapter 17. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. Now I want you to listen to words from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Why is that? Because they'd been somewhere else. They'd met the truth. They'd imbibed the life of Jesus. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Listen, that, however, is not the way you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, 
you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what happens when we follow Christ. We run into the truth. We imbibe the truth. The truth, the words of Jesus, change us. Changes us. A purified soul is in position to love others. That's the point here. Now, because the church is made up of all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, it's easy to see why we need this kind of love. Love which really is expressing his will, taking precedence over our will. The church at Corinth is a good example. They had some high moments of spirituality, but then they fell prey to temptation, and they broke into cliques that were warring factions against one another. There was a real class struggle going on. When a soul is purified, these things will not be entertained. They will not be tolerated. I... If memory serves me correctly, I told you about a church one time that was feuding. They were not living up to their potential. They were living down to their humanity. They weren't allowing the love of God to be shed abroad in their hearts toward other people and and allowing his will to take precedence over their will. They were selfish. There was a middle aisle in this church. People would come into the church, and those that were of one faction would sit on this side. Those that were of the other faction would sit on that side. And whenever they had an opportunity, they would lob a verbal shell across the aisle at one another. Some snide remark. Even in prayers, they managed to do this. That's what we're talking about. That God wants to help us overcome that sort of fleshly behavior. Responding to the ministry of God's Spirit sets us apart. To live and act differently. Living a set-apart, sanctified life in this context in light of our relationship with others, is preferable behavior. We're in a position to love by being born again. The the, the first thing I mentioned to you issues out of this. This whole thing of being born again. Look at verse 23. For you have been born again. Let's read both of them. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart because... You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. The Holy Spirit affects the purification of our souls. It may sound arrogant, but I'm going to say it anyway. No one can love like God wants them to love without being born again. Pure and simple. The reason is simple. This kind of love is due to the Holy Spirit ministering through us. He cannot minister through us until he is in us. He's not in us until we respond to Christ. That's what happens at the time of our spiritual birth. Spiritual birth is not something we do in and of ourselves. Our seed is perishable. Spiritual birth is to be born of a seed imperishable, namely Christ. And it's through the agency of God's word. Look at verse 23. Through the living and enduring Word of God. You've been born again, not of imperishable seed, or not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. 
Now, it isn't the Word which is the source or origin of our salvation. It's still God's grace. But it's the Word living and abiding or living and enduring through which it is affected. And if we need to know the truth, we can count on the Word. Look at what it says, verse 24. All people are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. So having purified our souls, having said no to evil, as a result of having been born again, we're in a position to succeed at loving other people his way and not our own way. Some, some very critical things to notice here, about four or five of them as I recall. Let me look at the back page and I'll tell you. Four of them. Four things. We need to notice the dual nature of the effort that's involved here. We are held responsible for and expected to maintain and manifest pure souls. It is God, however, who's ultimately responsible for coming to life uh, spiritually, for our coming to life spiritually, for us having been born again. And if you notice, in, in, in the, well, you don't notice, it's pointed out to you, but in the Greek, this phrase, verse 23, having been born again, is in the passive voice. It's not something we did. It's something that was done to us. The result of someone else's action. So there's that dual effort involved. Secondly, the very fact that we can be expected to maintain and manifest the purity of our souls is traceable to God. It is His work in us. He's the one giving us the potential. We don't do this in and of ourselves. Thirdly, the fact that we can be expected to love others is not a case of God demanding the impossible. He has set us up for this all along the way. This love is a fruit of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is within us, He'll manifest Himself through us. How does He do it? Through things like Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. There are nine virtues that are listed there. So we can succeed. That's right. We can succeed, not in and of ourselves, but through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can love according to God's will and not our own. Success is merely the ability to do what is expected, and God ensures that we can do it. The fourth thing we need to see is this. Just coming to Christ, listen to me now, friends, just coming to Christ will not ensure that others are going to be loved. All of us have our own horror stories of Christian people in churches where they fail to love as they ought. We've got to come to Christ, and then we've got to conscientiously follow Christ. We can never put our spiritual lives on autopilot. It's not a slam dunk. We're at war every day. But greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. But why the failure? Impure souls? You got that right. Born uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I said that last week. I said that several weeks in a row. That's where we are in our human condition. It could be that some who claim to know Christ don't really know him. What they bought into is the institution of the church. They formally say all the right words, but they don't know Christ. Could be that. It could be that they've come to know Christ, but they're living an unguarded life. If we let Satan in the car... He's going to drive. That's living an unguarded life. Now, impurity may not always look like open hostility toward one another. Sometimes it can be just passive indifference. That's just as deadly. 
It's possible that a, to, be in a, to be a church that's not at war, but still not manifesting a sincere love for one another. I think we can thank God on a whole that Elam, that that's not the case here, but we've got to remember the, the popular saying, love isn't love until it's given away. We can't be passively indifferent toward our neighbor. So what do we do about it? Sometimes people appear passive because they just don't know how to express their love in an active way. What can I say, what can I do that will let someone else know I care? We've reviewed things like this before, so this should not be new. I'm certain that Wally did in the 18 years that he was here. Let me give you four things we can do. This is not rocket science. We can tell them how we feel about them. It's important that we let other people know how we feel about them. Words of appreciation can go a long, long way. It may be almost a rule of thumb that those we appreciate most, we let them know the least. Let's not, that, let's not let that happen at Elam. Secondly, we can open our home to them. The practice of hospitality is always in. It's always needed. If not dinner or coffee or dessert or a video, how about just for a visit? They used to do that in the old days. You know, they used to pop in on each other and visit. We don't do that much anymore. But practicing an open home is incredibly helpful. We can take them out. We can meet a need they might have. Here's the point. If we want to succeed, we need to do the expected. God has equipped us for it. Let's move to the second point. It is also expected, not just that we love one another, but that we love one another in light of the dictates of God's Word. It's fitting and proper to do the kind of things that we've just suggested, but true love demands more. We're only in a position to love when we've dealt with our own hearts. And obviously Peter isn't quite done talking about this because he's going on, so we've got to go on with him. He talks about what constitutes a pure soul. And then here he deals with some of the impurities which can contaminate us. And I can't tell you why he picks just these five. There are many more. But he picks five things and he points, it out, points them out to the uh, people to whom he wrote. Rid yourselves of these things, he says. Interesting way of putting it. Get rid of these things. Chapter 2, verse 1. Rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Let's just do a little bit of work on each of these words, very briefly. Malice, what is that? Well, it's related to the word malicious. That helps us a little better, doesn't it? Malicious behavior toward one another. It's, uh, it's the opposite of love, which wills only good. Paul said love does not work evil. Interestingly, the word translated evil is the same word you could translate malice. Evil and malice, not good bedfellows. But it has to do with being vicious toward each other. An attitude toward hurting someone. Peter says, get rid of it. If you've had it, get rid of it. It's not appropriate. We should also rid ourselves of all guile. Not a word we use very often, but deceit is a word that we use more often. Cunning, 
treachery. A good example would be Jacob in the Old Testament. He got what he wanted by stealth, by craftiness, till God cleaned him up. Here in Peter, it probably suggests uh, deception through our way, away with words. You say, why do you say that? Well, look over at uh, chapter 3, verse 10 for, for a moment, and you'll read these words. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So it's, it's, it has to do with deception through away with words. Peter says, get rid of it. Don't practice it. We're prone to do it because we're human. But we're called as believers not to live down to our humanity, but to live up to our potential. To love each other with God's will taking precedence over our wills. That's agape. And Peter's telling us how to do it. Get rid of this deceptive way of dealing with words about each other. The caution is to watch our way of wor- with words. Um, and our actions count too. And that's probably what Peter had in mind when he mentions the next thing, hypocrisy. Now, there's a popular one. People love to throw that at Christians. I'd go to church, but they're all full of hypocrites. Well, come on, be another one. It means to play act, knowingly misrepresent what is actual through our actions. Let me read a quote to you. William Barclay said this about hypocrisy. In the New Testament... There is no sin more strongly condemned than hypocrisy. Of all sins, hypocrisy is the easiest to fall into, and of all sins, it is the most sternly condemned. Let me give you an observation. Frankly, I don't buy this when people say the church is full of hypocrites. Oh, there are probably some people who are play-acting, trying to pull the wool over other people's eyes in the church, but what I've met in the church more often than that aren't hypocrites just people that are dealing with their humanity, people who struggle, people who are growing in their faith and showing imperfection along with perfection from time to time. There's a difference between that and somebody who's just trying to pull the wool over your eyes and play a game. I don't see very many hypocrites in the church, but it is something to be mindful of. Let's not be hypocritical. Let's not say, bless you, pastor, bless you, deacons, bless you, elders, and then go outside and swear about those rotten people in the church. You know what I mean? That's hypocrisy. Then he says, get rid of all envy. I take it to mean envy is the same as jealousy. It's synonymous with jealousy. Get rid of it. And then get rid of all slander, evil speech, defamation of someone else's character. Peter intimates the believer has discarded these behaviors. Rid yourself of them. And he's settled on the fact that he will long for God's word on how to behave. The idea is we're called to consistently replace poor behavior with good behavior. When we realize something that's going, that we're acting poorly, we should check ourselves and take care of it. That's what God gave, gave us the Holy Spirit for. He reproves, he rebukes, he corrects in righteousness. We're to deal with our own hearts, that's the point. And we're best in a position to deal with our own hearts when we're exposing them to God's Word. Look at verse 2. Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. 
How do we develop a relationship with Christ? By getting to know him. By getting to know about him. How do we do that? Well, at least in part, we do that by reading his words and words about him. We read the scriptures. See, there is an end to our Bible reading. It's not just a silly tradition we follow. There's an end to our Bible reading. We should do it. We should go for Bible reading like a baby goes for milk, according to this passage. We should do it for spiritual growth. You want to succeed in your spiritual life? Having decided to lay aside ugly behavior like malice, etc., develop through attention to God's Word a relationship with Christ. I mean, come on, let's get real with each other. What is Christianity? What in the world is Christianity? Some people think institutionally when they think of Christianity. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not more brick and mortar on the corner. Christianity is not a lot of things we assume it is at times. Christianity, when you boil it down, is simply this. It's a life of loving, obediently following, and getting to know Christ. We've tried to epitomize that in our mission statement here at Elam. Elam Mission Church exists for the purpose of helping people come to know Christ, grow in faith, and become engaged in ministry. It's just getting to know Jesus better and better and better. That's Christianity. How are you doing? Are you growing? If you're not growing, I'll bet you I can tell you some of the reasons why you may not be growing. And only you know whether you're growing or not. One of the big reasons people don't grow is they don't read. They don't imbibe the words of, of Jesus, the words about Jesus. They don't read the prophets. They don't read the epistles. They just depend on the pastor to give it to them every week. They eat once a week, and they starve the rest of the week. If you're not growing, is that the reason? You have no consistent time with God, just you and him. And if that is the reason, if you need some help getting on with it, look inside your worship folder, if you will. You'll find this little insert in there. Got seven minutes for God? Let me tell you how you can get started or restarted. Now, for some of you, this is not applicable at all because you have very disciplined, quiet times. You're reading the Word consistently. You teach the Word. You sit under the instruction of the Word. But my, if my guess is correct, and I've been around this thing called the church for a long time, there are a lot of people who just don't get into this. They accepted Jesus, but they don't bother reading what he's got to say very often. If you want to turn it around in your life, I would say check there first. Check there first. Let me read what it says on this paper. Most Christians will tell you they firmly believe in the importance of spending regular time in God's Word and in prayer each day. Yet so many of us struggle to do this consistently. And it is a struggle. You've got to discipline yourself. Perhaps this is because we think this time with God has to be monumental, a mystical experience of some kind. In fact, you can begin developing this spiritual discipline in as little as seven minutes a day. You say, how do you do that? Well, that's what the rest of the sheet is about. Take about a half a minute just to prepare your heart. You just talk to the Lord. You say, Lord, cleanse me. Speak to me through your scriptures. Make my mind alert, my soul active, my heart responsive. 
Surround me with your presence during this time. Then you take four minutes. You say, only four minutes? If you're not doing any, four minutes is a whole lot better than nothing. Take four minutes to listen to God's Word. You say, where do I start? You could start in First Peter. That's what we're preaching every week. Just read through Peter again and again and again. Or you can start at the place of your choice. You want to start in Leviticus? Go ahead. You could start with... Um, Remember the sheet we gave you last week? Um, this, this yellow thing, there's some on the literature table, I think, back there. You could read these scriptures four minutes a day, and it would be immensely helpful to you. And then read, and then uh, talk to God for a couple of minutes. Two and a half minutes, they say, on this sheet. I think he's trying to make a point, don't you? And he breaks it down. Spend time in adoration of God. Spend time in confession before God. Spend time thanks, giving thanks to God. Spend time bringing your requests to God. And then he says this. This is simply a guide. Listen to this. Very soon you'll discover it's impossible to spend only seven minutes with the Lord. An amazing thing happens. Seven minutes become 20. And not long, not long before you, and not, and it's not long before you're spending 30 precious minutes a day with him. Is that better than what you're doing? And I would suggest you do it. We do not live this life by ourselves. And God did not intend us to fail. He's given us all the direction we need. If success is the ability to do what's expected, God wants us to succeed. He wants you to succeed. There have been times in my life, as a pastor even, I've been so busy, I've gotten a little slack in reading the Word. And the Holy Spirit, frankly, has slapped me upside the face and said, who do you think you are? You think you can go all alone? You need my Word in your life. So I've buckled down and gotten back to business. He has given us the ability to do what He expects. Success, then, is at our doorstep. And the only thing I can say, Elam, Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Peter's words. Peter wrote to people that were like us. People who were human, yet yielded. But people who needed to remain vigilant. And we are like that. We need to remain vigilant as well. Drifting is such a subtle subtle road to mediocrity. Help us, Lord, not to allow ourselves to drift, but to catch ourselves, to be people of the Word, to imbibe on your truth, so that we can love like you'd have us to love. Thank you, Lord, again, for the opportunity of being together this morning. We pray now, Lord, as we collect these connection cards that some might write a request down based upon what we've been talking about this morning so we can pray with them more specifically about their own desires. But be that as it may, we thank you, Lord, for everyone who's here, and we pray now your blessing upon your tithe and our offering as we receive it. This is very much a part of our worship as well as hearing the word and lifting our voices in song. Thank you for this offering. In Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.